fully one half of the sermon I'm going to I'm, I'm going to preach before we get into the text. So uh, I don't want you to be um, uh, confused. I wanted to talk about this definition of of God's grace which you'll find an extended uh, outline on the back of your bulletin with several scripture verses. Um, So you may want to have that handy as well. Uh, Please open to Genesis chapter 25. I found a quote this morning, and uh, it was actually in my notes from from, uh, officer training. Uh, but I had put in there, I guess over a year ago, Calvin says, "Man, No man makes himself a sheep, but is created such by divine grace. I wanted to share that with you. Let's pray. Father, um, we did not make ourselves sheep. You made us sheep. And our Lord Jesus in John chapter 10 says that the, the sheep listens to the good shepherd's voice. And so, Father, I pray that you would pour out your Spirit. Give us attentive ears that we might hear the, uh, the voice of the good shepherd, Jesus himself, uh, speaking to us um, as his word is, is opened up and, and read and expounded. I pray that uh, you would make us more like him as a result of you using your word and your spirit in our life. We ask in Jesus' name. Amen. In reading for this sermon, I came across a couple of quotes that caught my interest. A fellow named Robert Brown said, Grace is the most important word in the Protestant vocabulary. Another uh, guy named Ilian Jones said nearly the same thing. He said the word grace is unquestionably the most significant word in the Bible. Those are strong statements. My reaction was, well, the word God, I think, would be a, a more significant word than grace. Jesus, the Holy Spirit, of course that's three words, but you, you, know, you know what I'm saying. Even the word righteousness, I think, would be even more uh, significant. Um, that being said, I do think that the concept of grace is a very important concept in the Bible. Easily in the top ten in terms of importance, probably in the top five. What is grace? In biblical usage, uh, Lewis Burkhoff gives a very succinct definition uh, of this important word. He says, Grace is God's free, undeserved, and sovereign favor and love to man in his state of sin and guilt. Now, let's real quickly unpack this definition. And as I said earlier, the outline on the back of your bulletin will prove helpful as I've printed out some of the Scripture verses that I'm going to be referring to. First of all, uh, Burkhoff says that, that grace, according to the, how the Bible defines it, is free. You know Ephesians 2, 8, and 9. For it is by grace you have been saved through faith, and this not of yourselves. It is the gift of God, not by works, so that no one can boast. God's grace 
is a completely free gift. You cannot earn it by doing good works or by being a good person. It's also undeserved. So it's not only a free gift, it's also something that you simply do not deserve. Uh, God's grace is undeserved because we have sinned against God. Uh, Romans 3.24 For all have sinned, and I think all of us in this room would be included in that all. All have sinned and fall short of the glory of God and are justified by His grace as a gift. So there's the freeness again through the redemption that is in Christ Jesus. Instead of God's grace, we frankly deserve His displeasure, His justice, and His wrath. But instead of receiving what we deserve, God gives us justification, forgiveness of sins, redemption, adoption as His sons, eternal life, and we could go on and on. And He gives these things to us as a free gift of His grace. Romans 5.10 also uh, tells us that uh, this gift is undeserved. God doesn't wait for us to straighten up or to accept Jesus before He gives us His gift of grace. God gives us His grace while we are in our rebellion, while we are away from God, even while we were God's enemies. Romans 5.10 For if, while we were enemies, we were reconciled to God by the death of His Son, much more, now that we are reconciled, shall we be saved by His life. God's grace is not received after we come to Christ. Rather, God's grace is the reason why we turn to Jesus. Is the reason why we turn away from our rebellion. If it were not for His grace, none of us would ever come to God. So then, why do some come to God and why do others stay in their rebellion? Ultimately, the reason is found in God's grace. God is sovereign in His distribution of grace. So Burkhoff said God's grace is free. It is undeserved. It is also sovereign. Um, he owes grace to no one. If He owed it to us, then guess what? It wouldn't be grace. But God has, according to His sovereign will, chosen to place His love upon some human beings and not others. Before the beginning of the world, in eternity past, God elected a people for Himself to be His own beloved adopted children. His decision to elect and love had nothing to do with who we would be, who we presently are, who, what, or with anything we could ever do. Ephesians uh, 1, 4 and 5 says, For He chose us in Him before the creation of the world to be holy and blameless in His sight. In love He predestinated us to be adopted as His sons through Jesus Christ in accordance with His pleasure and His glory.
I know this might be difficult for some of you if you've never heard this before. But it's clearly taught in the Scriptures. It's like it's taught all over the Bible. We could spend the next hour or two just uh, reading verses from the Bible that uh, teach this doctrine explicitly um, just from verses I'm able to remember off the top of my head. Uh, this this is um, this is a doctrine that is ignored uh, and disdained by many Christians because it's humbling to human pride. It's humbling because uh, to think that you had nothing to do with your salvation uh, that can be very humbling, or uh, that everyone or, or this idea that is so pervasive that everyone gets the same chance to be saved. Um, and people, people really struggle with that. The Gospel call goes out to everyone. God is not willing that any should perish. But yet, the Bible also uh, clearly says that He has elected a people for Himself. His... his um, if, if God were obligated in His grace to elect everyone, then His grace would no longer be grace. Romans 11, verses 5 and 6. So too at the present time there is a remnant. Well, what's a remnant? A smaller portion of the greater whole. There's a remnant chosen by grace. And if it is by grace, it is no longer on the basis of works. Otherwise, grace would no longer be grace. Now many people object, that's not fair. That only some are elected for salvation while others are not. But in reality, it's not fair that any would be chosen for salvation. We are all undeserving. We are all enemies of God. None of us would willingly choose God unless He first chose us and drew us to Himself. All this really shows us the necessity of God's grace. Before God drew us to Himself, we were helplessly lost. We were enemies of God. We were children of Satan. And we followed our own flesh instead of God. In short... We were dead in our sins and by nature children of wrath. All that I just said in this last couple of sentences is found in Ephesians 2, 1 through 5. And you are dead in the trespasses and sins in which you once walked, following the course of this world, following the prince of the power of the air, the spirit that is now at work in the sons of disobedience, among whom we all we all once lived in the passions of our flesh, carrying out the desires of the body and the mind. We were by nature children of wrath like the rest of mankind. But God, being rich in mercy because of the great love with which He loved us, even when we were dead in our trespasses, made us alive together with Christ. It is by grace you have been saved. Do you believe that about yourself? That you were dead in your transgressions? That um, you were 
by nature children of wrath. That before you came to Christ, you were a follower of Satan and followed the passions of your own flesh rather than of God. Um, do you believe that about yourself? That's a heavy question to consider. One that we don't often uh, consider enough. If you don't believe that about yourself, are you willing to believe that about yourself? Here's the good news. If you believe this about yourself, then you understand that you have no hope or abilities in yourself to be able to have a relationship with God. All you can do is cast yourself on the mercy and grace of God. And that's the point, isn't it? How does this any, have anything to do with Genesis chapter 25? Well, this has everything to do with Genesis chapter 25. So we're going to focus our attention uh, this morning on verses 19 through 28. So if you have your Bibles open to Genesis chapter 25, follow along as I read uh, verses 19 through 21. These are the generations of Isaac, Abraham's son. Isaac, father, I'm sorry, Abraham fathered Isaac. And Isaac was 40 years old when he took Rebekah, the daughter of Bethuel, and the Aramean of Padam Aran, the sister of Laban, the Aramean, to be his wife. And Isaac prayed to the Lord for his wife because she was barren. And the Lord granted his prayer, and Rebekah, uh, his wife, conceived. God promised through Abraham, uh, God promised Abraham through Isaac that he would multiply Abraham's descendants uh, so that they would be as numerous as the stars in the sky. But did you notice that here in this passage, Isaac is now 40 years old. He wasn't even married until he was 40 years old. So he has been childless. He, the heir, he the one through whom uh, Abraham's descendants are going to become as numerous as stars in the sky, is 40 years old and he is now childless. And then did you notice as we read this, that his wife, once he got married, Rebecca. She's barren. And we know uh, that it took about 20 years before she ever got pregnant. So he was 40 when, when they got married. Another 20 years. Isaac is now 60 years old. And without any descendants. But yet God promised Abraham that he would have many descendants through Isaac. But, um, but his wife's having a hard time getting pregnant. Seems almost impossible. Well, take it back to Abraham's earlier life. God promised Abraham, you are going to be the father of many nations. Your descendants are going to be as, as numerous as the stars in the sky. But yet Abraham went decade after decade after that promise was made to him and his wife was barren. She could not have children. Uh, and now 
so Sarah couldn't have children, now Rebecca. You'd think that God's promise would make things go smoothly. God's promise you're going to have children, that your descendants are going to be as numerous as the stars in the sky. God has promised it. He reconfirmed that promise over and over and over again to Abraham. Isaac grew up with those promises being told to him by his father. You would think that everything would go smoothly. So why did God make it so impossible for Sarah to have children and then for Rebekah to have children? What God is doing is teaching them about His grace. God's grace and His blessing do not come about by human effort or human accomplishment. God calls Sarah and then Rebekah after her to be barren for a time to teach us that God's grace is a free, undeserved, and sovereign gift of God. And once Rebecca finally got pregnant, her pregnancy wasn't even easy. Far from it. Rebecca, in fact, it was so her her pregnancy was so difficult that she prayed to God about her difficult pregnancy. And God told her, well, the reason it's difficult is you've got two nations inside you. <laughs> I saw in passing, uh, I think Bay News 9 was on in our house, and I just happened to be walking through the room, and there was this news report about this woman uh, gave birth to a 13-pound baby, uh, naturally. And there was some apparently some kind of record. Um, well, at least she didn't have two nations inside her all at once. Uh, she thought she had a bad delivery. You know, Rebecca's must have been terrible. And so, verses 22 and 23, the children struggled together within her, and she said, If it is thus, why is this happening to me? So she went to inquire of the Lord, and the Lord said to her, Two nations are in your womb, and two peoples from within you shall be divided. The one be stronger than the other, the other shall serve, uh, the older shall serve the younger. So God not only told her that two nations are struggling inside her, but that the older child would serve the younger child. Uh, this was completely contrary to all the, the, the social or societal norms of the day. You know how it worked in their day. The firstborn always received the inheritance. The firstborn was always given the prominence in the family. Yet here is God sovereignly deciding that the younger of the children, the younger of the twins, would receive the inheritance. And of course the two twins that are in her in her womb that are apparently uh, uh, booking it out for supremacy uh, within her womb are Esau and Jacob. Even though they are twins, they are not identical in any way. Esau was red and hairy, while Jacob was not. And as they grew up, Esau liked to hunt. Um, Jacob liked to stay around the tents with his mother. And so you see this in verses 24 through 28. When her days to give birth were completed, behold, there were twins in her womb. The first came out all red, all his body like a hairy cloak. So they called his name Esau. Afterward, his brother came out with his hand holding Esau's heel so that his name was called Jacob. Isaac was 60 years old when she, when she bore them. When the boys grew up, 
Esau was a skillful hunter, a man of the field, while Jacob was a quiet man dwelling in the tents. Isaac loved Esau because he ate of his game, but Rebekah loved Jacob. Now you would think that Esau would have been the ideal child to receive the inheritance and then lead the family on into greatness. Uh, Similarly, no one would have picked Jacob to be the leader of the family. Uh, He was a homebody, like stay around the tents. That's exactly what God did. He chose the younger one, Jacob, uh, to receive the inheritance. He chose Jacob to be the family leader. Now to press the matter forward, I'm sorry, press the matter matter further. We're going to learn in the next few chapters that Jacob was hopelessly self-centered, and that he was a schemer. Uh, We'll see that Jacob cheated his brother out of his birthright. Then we're going to see that he deceived his own father to uh, cheat his brother out of his blessing and out of his inheritance. And then he, he had to flee from his brother. He made his brother so angry he had to flee to his uncle's house. He ended up cheating his uncle. Um, Jacob, when he came out grasping his brother's heel, uh, he received the name Jacob. And it means um, uh, like uh, he grasps or he deceives. And so Jacob's very word means that he is a deceiver. Uh, He's not the person that any of us would have picked to be the leader of God's people. But his unrighteousness made him the perfect person to teach us about God's grace. That God's grace is free, undeserved, and sovereign. Um, That it is his favor... His undeserved, um, undeserved favor and love to man in his state of sin and guilt. And maybe you're wondering how I was able to draw this out about grace here from this passage. Well, I had some help and guidance uh, from the Apostle Paul himself. If you'll turn and we'll um, begin concluding this sermon by turning to Romans chapter 9. Romans 9, the Apostle Paul is talking about God's grace. And he's talking about the sovereign choice of God's grace. And he particularly mentions Jacob and Esau. So in verse 9, the Scripture reads in Romans 9, Romans 9, 9, uh, I'm sorry, verse 10, chapter 9, verse 10. And not only so, but also when Rebekah had conceived children by one man, our father Isaac, though they were not yet born or had done anything, either good or bad, in order that God's purpose and election might continue, not because of works, but because of him who calls, she was told, the older will serve the younger, just as it is written, Jacob I loved, Esau I hated. Uh, the 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 passage the the verse old the older will serve the younger right from Genesis chapter twenty five in the book of Malachi um, Malachi goes on and says that uh, before they were born or done anything good or bad Jacob I loved Esau I hated now that raises several questions one of the first questions is is there is that in, is that unjust on God's part can God really do that. 
Well, Paul knows that we'll answer that question. So verse 14, he says, What shall we say then? Is there injustice on God's part? By no means. For he says to Moses, I will have mercy on whom I will have mercy. I will have compassion on whom I have compassion. So that it depends not on human will or exertion, but on God who has mercy. Later on in this same passage, it talks about God being the potter. And that He has the right to make out of the same lump of clay one pot to make to make a nice, beautiful vase to put the flowers in, to, to, to have the central uh, spot in the, the family room for everybody to see and admire. And out of that same lump of clay, after He had divided it, to take and make just a, a very common, ordinary um, a pot. Really, a, a pot um, for refuge, for garbage. Um, out of the same lump of clay. God has that right. I mentioned these quotes by, um, by these two gentlemen that said that, that grace is the most important word in the Bible. Um, what God's grace does when we really see God's grace is it causes us to look above God's grace to the giver of God's grace, to God Himself. And what we are seeing this morning is that God is a gracious God in loving His enemies so much that He sent His only Son to die for His enemies. And not only that, that He has graciously given salvation to sinners who were unworthy to receive it. That He, in His free, in, in His sovereign, in His grace that we certainly do not deserve, His free gift to us, He has given salvation. What this does is this magnifies God to us. And it also calls us to say, who is this that we are dealing with? I think men like uh, these two two guys I quoted at the beginning of the sermon, who says that grace is simply the the highest and greatest um, word in the Bible. It stops with man and man's reception of grace. It doesn't cause us to look forward. It doesn't cause us to look above God's grace. Well, I want to cause you this morning to look above God's grace, to look to God. If you are an unbeliever, cry out to Him for mercy. You might be um, greatly concerned in your soul as we're talking about election by grace. The same God who elects is the same God who says, Whosoever will. The same God who says, For God so loved the world that whosoever will may come to Him. Whosoever will believe. In other words, when God elects, He causes, He draws people to Himself. And they believe because He is at work in them. We are talking here about a salvation that is by grace from first to last. And we are talking about a God who saves. 
we are not talking about a God who can be trifled with. Are you trifling with God this morning? We're going to have the Lord's Supper here in a few moments. And if you have never called upon God, or if you are presuming upon God and living in your sin, thinking that God is a small God that can be trifled with, I want to call you to repentance. Frankly, I want to call all of us to repentance because we are all sinners and fall short of the glory of God. And our only hope is God's free gift of grace that He has given us through the redemption that is found in Jesus Christ alone. Let's pray together. Almighty God, I know why you put this passage of Scripture in the, in the Bible. The Apostle Paul um, opened it up for us. The Israelites, while they were out in the, the wilderness, you leading them um, night and day, the pillar of cloud and the pillar of fire, instead of them being humbled, they presumed upon you. We are God's chosen nation. And they failed to realize that you are the one who gives salvation. And that without your electing grace, none would be saved. And they sinned and they rebelled thinking that they were uh, okay with you simply because you were in their presence. And being in their, your presence should have caused them to be humbled, should have caused them to bow their hearts in fear, in trembling, and in trust and belief. God, I pray for any here, first of all for unbelievers who are trifling with you, and secondly, for your own children who have forgotten that you are the sovereign God, the electing God, the God of grace and mercy. I ask that you would um, pour out your Spirit upon all of us as we now prepare to come to your table. Help us to remember afresh and anew that our Lord Jesus laid down His life for the sheep and that He took it up gloriously again. And Father, may our communion with Him be especially sweet this morning. We ask in His name. Amen.